Melissa Harrison here for our latest edition of the Religion Unplugged podcast. Today in the studio, our executive director of the Media Project, Paul Gladder, is joined by photographer Kieran Dodds of Scotland, who was recently in New York City for a photography exhibition. Let's listen in on their conversation. Kieran, tell us, you know, what brought you to New York this week? So um, I came in on a plane. Uh, for an <laughs> exhibition opening, boom, boom. Um, it was at First Things, uh, and the project is called Hyratopia, and it's about the church forests in Ethiopia, and it's a project I've been working on for about four years, uh, whenever time and money allows. Yeah, okay, so tell us about that project. How did it start? You know, how did you get interested in Ethiopia, and uh, what what is Hyratopia? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Hyratopia means sacred space, um, I'll maybe explain that a bit later on, but it's really about these forests that surround church buildings. And in Ethiopia, most of the forest, 95%, has disappeared in the last 100 years. So the last remnants are around these church buildings, and they actually become part of the church building. They are the clothes of the church, as, as the people say. Um, and how I came across it was uh, kind of by chance. I was looking at the wider world. I, I do a lot of projects overseas, uh, a lot of stories, and... My interest is in environmental issues in particular. My background is zoology. Um, And I was looking at Ethiopia, it must have been five years ago, and noticing it was on the rise. Its economy was booming and industry was growing. And I was kind of interested in that, to be honest. Like Ethiopia is known as this um, basket case, really, uh, where there was famine and I was growing up. That was what it is in my psyche and and still is today in the West. so I looked at this and I thought, made in Ethiopia sounds quite, quite an interesting story. But then I'd, I'd been in China and I'd been looking at the environmental cost of mm-hmm. industrial revolution. And I just asked the question, you know, what is, where, where in the environment in Ethiopia, um, what is bearing the cost, rather, in the environment in Ethiopia? And I was expecting, as ever, to be quite depressed. Mm-hmm. You know, the environmental stories are often like pretty bleak. But then I, I stumbled upon in the scientific literature these uh, church forests, and the more I dug, the more I was amazed. And then I looked in Google Maps, and you could just see these little green oases across this brown landscape, hmm. and I was just captivated. And so I thought I need to get out there. And that yeah, was, that was the start of it. Yeah, yeah. So. Um uh, we have a lot of friends, by the way, in Ethiopia with the Media Project, mm. and um, uh, one of them drove me around in all these these Chinese roads, you know, lots of infrastructure, like mm-hmm. you're saying. Um, and there, so Ethiopia has a, some 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 interesting Christian history. Apparently, tell us a bit what you learned. Um, and they also have mixed, you know, uh, Orthodox and Protest, uh, Protestant Protestant mm-hmm. uh, groups there. So which which are the groups that are building the that started planting these forests around the churches, yeah. and why did they, you know, how and why did they start doing that? Well, these buildings are from the Middle Ages, um, so like 1200, 1300. So that was when the whole area would have been covered in forest. So in a sense, they weren't planting it, they just weren't chopping it down. Um, and as progress has taken hold, um, and different land um, rights with the, the communist dirge, um, the forest has been lost. So in a sense, uh, but the people doing it are the Tewahedo Orthodox churches. They've been there the longest. Hmm. Um, and the Protestants are quite new to the country, although it's booming. It's a huge um, growth in the church there. Mm-hmm. Is, so these churches that were preserving those forests, were they, 
you know, were they practicing some kind of theology of ecology or was it more random or, you know, um, in, in terms of why they did it? Yeah. It is a, is a theological landscape. So they are, they are um, living out their faith on the land. They see them as gardens of Eden. They see them as um, essential to the dignity of the building as well. And so people look at them as a gift from God and as something to be protected and guarded. So it's something very intentional that they protect them. Um, but there has been changes politically uh, over the years. And during uh, the dirge, there was uh, land grabs, people redistributing re, um, land. And the church lost some, but they also lost the walls around them, which protect them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's been a big change in that. And so working with the scientist there, he's trying to re-educate um, people about how to protect them. It's almost a, the knowledge has been lost, although people still desire um, to protect the forest. The, uh, this project was featured in National Geographic, and you said Nature, mm -hmm. and where else have this has this been? Well, that's that's the main two so far. It's just this year it started being published. Yeah, um, okay. So it's taken a while to come to fruition, mm -hmm. um, and then it's it, it won a third prize in the Sony World Photo Awards just last week, uh, mm. as well. Congratulations! So, thank you, yeah. thank you. And so that that is bringing a new audience to it, and in some ways, it's different from other stories I've worked on because it's not just about the public publication. It's about getting the word out there, and in particular, getting the word to the people in Ethiopia. This is their treasure, and I mm. want them to um, cherish it and know about it. Yeah, and you, uh, the National Geographic piece talked about ideas on how to uh, save those gardens, like using, uh, you know, building new walls or something, or expanding the walls. How yeah. is that? Yeah. Uh, since you documented this project, is it is that happening? Or yeah, we call them conservation walls. Mm -hmm. Just to avoid any confusion hmm. in people's minds, uh, that these right. walls are good to build. <laughs> to other walls, yeah. yeah, is to keep cows out, and not people. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so they they have built some in the last few years, and they have incredible effect uh, very quickly. Like the the plants burst forth, um, and it just stops cattle getting in, hmm. and it makes people remember whose the land is, and they respect that, and they move on. They don't walk through it or chomp at the edges if you're a cow. Um, and so that's that's ongoing, and it's something I've actually just I put a website up, churchforest.org, hmm. and that is to raise, um, or just to direct people to support the work, to learn more, but also donate if they're able, um, to build more of these conservation walls. We're trying to get them, I think, 38 most biodiverse uh, protected. I think about 10 have been done so far. So it, there are hundreds of these forests, hmm. um, but it's just trying to start small and create this kind of movement towards uh, conservation. Yeah. Um, let's talk for a minute about how, how you documented and the challenge of documenting this in the, in the, in the landscape there, uh, you know, photographically and logistically planning which ones to photograph and how to photograph those. How did that happen? How, what, what decisions did you make on that? In deciding which ones to go to? Yeah, deciding yeah. which ones to go to and then how to document this, uh, yeah. these, these landscapes. Yeah. So I started off just amazed by the the time scales involved like the centuries that they've endured for and the way that the people have worshipped under the same canopy as their ancestors and so I wanted to sort of show that photographically um, the kind of passing of time so that was one aspect of it showing the transition and the, the permanence of the forest and the other was trying to get this tension between the aerials which I've been drawn into 
and also get a sense of the people on the ground, the people who are actually protecting it, not just the, the sort of um, physical shapes on the landscape, but the people who, whose ideas are making these shapes. Um, and in a sense, I got inspiration from the book of Genesis, because mm. you've got those two angles in Genesis 1, mm-hmm. the sort of transcendent God above things, mm. um, the aerial perspective, and then the imminence walking in the garden. So you've got these two angles and tension in the biblical story, as far as I can see it. And I wanted to show that um, and to t- try and integrate those uh, together. So I started off on the ground, just going into forests where I could get permission. Um, they're quite private people. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to ones that had walls. I went to some that didn't have walls. Sometimes you were just passing by and you thought, let's go and have a look. Um, so there was some structure to it, but there was also just general uh, providence and curiosity, actually. Um, the first trip, I had enough time to sort of meander around. Um, the second trip, the first trip was about a month. The second trip was shorter and much more focused. And that actually was mm. driven a lot by, um, I suppose, what the church force looked like because it was the aerial shots. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of structure and a bit of just following following my nose. And so you used a drone for the aerials? Yeah, uh, yeah. DJI or Chinese drone? Or? I'm, not, I'm not sponsored. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But most, yeah. most are Chinese. Yeah, and they're very yeah. good for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so DJI. And, and I saw that there's some issue with the eagles or something. You, did you have eagles attack your drone? Yeah, or no, no? yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, I used a local fixer, and he was great for just spotting um, potential risks and out there there's very little air traffic and um, you're not going that high anyway um, but eagles were the ones that you had to watch for because they attack drones whereas vultures just circle around and mm. I had some pigeons actually was the nearest encounter just some pigeons um, thinking they had one of their own yeah um, so they would fly around as well but yeah with no impacts thankfully yeah great so um, you know one question uh, some of these images I noticed you had uh, a church that didn't had fo- a forest around it or maybe mm. sk- you know spotted trees here and there was that a sign of one that had, had not been able to preserve the forest or mm. are you seeing um, some churches that don't have or lost forests starting to replant them or I was wondering why we had some, why you in the in the project you had images where there you know weren't forests yeah so I was trying to show as well the the progression because mm-hmm. they are dying um, if they're not protected by the conservation wall then they get thinned at the edges and they die from the outside in so I needed to show this the full canopy you get around the lakeside mm-hmm. where there's no access by humans or, or animals um, towards almost total um, totally disappeared um, so there's some in the book that show some large trees around it, but everything else is gone. And they are, they're, they're past it. I don't know if you could save them, uh, mm. to be honest. But then there's another image um, which shows this sort of gleaming white building. And it's mm-hmm. kind of, the earth is darker mm. with a couple of paths through it. And actually, that is a new church building because mm. the population is booming in Ethiopia. It's going to double in about 30 years. They're actually planting new church buildings to cope with that. So what you'd expect an increased population to destroy the forest through more agriculture. Here you have a new church building being planted to look after the people's spiritual needs. Mm. And the locals have got together and said, this is the land from which the forest can grow. And so even in a few years, you can see it's darker than the the farmland and you can see shoots of green coming through. Mm. Um, So if the land is given back to um, be forest, it becomes forest Mm. quite quickly, um, assuming it's, it's got another one nearby to seed it. 
Okay. And, and by the way, so you, if, if it was mostly this Orthodox mm. church in Ethiopia uh, doing this. I'm curious if you've seen, you know, are other denominations in Ethiopia grasping this idea? And what about other parts of Africa or, or Orthodox or other um, denominations uh, um, or religions even planting trees, you know, saving the forests? Mm -hmm. Is religion saving the forests no. in other parts of Africa? <laughs> <laughs> not yet, not yet. Um, not as far as I'm aware. There are sacred groves I know of in um, West Africa. They tend to be for where they bury the dead. Um, so this connection, this theological connection between preserving it, not just for a functional, mm -hmm. you know, burying people, um, but actually because it's a God's gift to them. I've, mm. I've not seen that anywhere else. And it's something which isn't really known in Ethiopia, to be honest. Like, that's why I'm mm. so delighted. When I yeah. was showing this in London last week at Somerset House, like the Sony... Um, exhibition the Ethiopian embassy came along and mm -hmm. did a short interview with me and and it was so nice because the staff from the embassy were just delighted you know they, they, there's a guy from Bahadar which is the city mm. nearby and and he was working in London now but he was just like this is amazing you know we need to tell my people about this you know? yeah um so I'm hoping it might it might inspire the Protestant churches the the Catholic churches anyone else in Africa or, or even in the western world to to see the link uh, between looking after the, the environment mm -hmm. and its kind of care for your neighbor mm. as an act of worship as well. Yeah, no, it definitely seems it's surprising and, and brings people together, even if someone's not religious, to understand and appreciate uh, a role churches are playing in, in that part of the world. Mm. Um, so where can people uh, where can people go if they want to see the images and and learn more about this whole project? What are the best sites and locations to find that? Yes, so best place to start might be churchforests.org. So that's the the little website I've I've um, helped put together, and then on that you've got a link to my website if you want to see the pictures and uh, kirandodds.com. You probably can't spell that, but um, it's on the, the bottom of the church forest website. You can see the link to that. Um, and then, yeah, nature. There's a beautiful immersive story on, on nature. Just Google nature, church forests. Um, and that's got a lot of links and, and the facts in there as well. And just some beautiful images. So that's probably the best great. places to go. Cool. Um, great. We, we, I wanted to hear more, too, on your background. Mm. So you started, you call yourself a nonfiction uh, photographer. Yeah. And I'm delighted you're here to talk uh, in New York at, you know, at First Things this earlier uh, last week and then today at King's College with some of our students. Um, and I'm sure we'll hear this, but uh, tell our listeners, you know, how did you find yourself from studying zoology to taking pictures at, at, uh, at newspapers mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and then beyond? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I studied zoology at University of Aberdeen. And uh, my final year project there was in Malawi. This is 18 years ago. And I was studying the monkeys and the trees uh, mm. and the fish. So you can see this in 18 years, I've not come that far. Um, <laughs> but in Melanju, we lived on this mountain for two months. And it's an incredible sight. And no one's really sort of documented it. Um, and we could see firsthand the destruction that comes when there's no protection. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, but not World Heritage. It was a man and biosphere reserve. And yet there was no fences. There was... Uh, the protection um, scouts, they were just not non-existent. So people mm. just go on, cut down trees and disappear. And during that time, I found it frustrating and it was perplexing. And actually, the way I was able to process these questions was through my camera. Um, mm. And it was when I came back as well. I mean, my dissertation did all right, but um, 
the photographs were really what connected with people. Hmm. And so that was the same time I was thinking, what shall I do as a career? I was editing the student paper as well, it must be said. Um, and I just thought journalism offers a way to analyze the world, to sort of share your curiosity and findings, and to do that in a succinct way. And it, it really felt like it was a natural um, progression for me hmm. in the way I'm made. Um, and so I left university and my first job, it was, it was in Edinburgh, which isn't too far from Aberdeen. And I just phoned up the, the big Sunday newspaper there and, and kind of started speaking to people. And I got an editorial assistant job writing hmm. um, for the summer about the Edinburgh Festival. Okay. Like putting on what, what was the best shows to go and see <laughs> and such like. Uh -huh. um, and then after that, uh, I went back to Aberdeen for a, a photo job that came up because no one wants to work in Aberdeen. Mm -hmm. um, and no one wants to work for nothing, but mm -hmm. I did, and it was a great place <laughs> to learn my craft. So I moved to Aberdeen, nine months there, and then I got a staff job in Glasgow at the Herald newspapers, and that, that really was the, the kind of formative apprenticeship, because I was working with really seasoned photographers, amazing mm. uh, people, and they taught me how to, mm. to, to cover the smallest stories, and yeah. actually, um, they, I remember they used to always say, it was, it was the Evening Times was right. the newspaper, and they said, if you can work for the Evening Times and you do it well, you could work for the New York Times. Hmm. Like, there's no difference in terms of the, the reporting. It's the same integrity. And so nowadays when I work for the New York Times, I remember that. And I, <laughs> I actually do think you, you turn up on a job for the New York Times and people don't believe you in Scotland when you say you're from them. But the, it's the same. Like, there's not a magic around some news events. You've got to kind of look and see the story. Uh, you've got to find it as much, even if you're with a big publication. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you paid your dues and uh, and and continued to. By the way, d early on when you got into newspaper uh, work and mm -hmm. photojournalism work, um, uh, how how, did, how was faith and religion part of the story? Because you know the media project. One of our theses, and uh, you know, is that journalists, whether you're covering religion full time or you're covering something else, sports, economics, whatever. Um, that journalists should uh, make sure to, you know, think about, see, see religion when it appears and not ignore it because mm. it's part of people's lives, yeah. you know. And I'm just wondering how that, um, you know, became evident to you if it did during your newspaper days and, and yeah. into the current projects. Yeah, well, in Malawi, I, wasn't, I wouldn't have called myself um, religious then. I would have been quite agnostic, um, studying the origins of life and um, the scientific worldview. That was where I, I lent. But going into... Um, Malawi and meeting the people there and even thinking about how um, to engage their um, main belief system like Christianity if they were Christians they weren't protecting the environment and I even as an agnostic understood that um, so I kind of at that point thought we need to talk about this mm -hmm. but I was interested in that particularly because my brother had come to faith um, as a Christian in Oxford while studying medicine hmm. and he'd give me a bible to read and I was like okay stopping weird um, <laughs> but when I came back to university I, I had a real worldview shift um, I looked at the evidence of Christianity and came to believe in the same way you come to believe scientific uh, truths mm -hmm. uh, that it was a historical event and then I sort of committed my life to that hmm. um, and yeah that has shaped the way I view the world mm -hmm. massively uh, and also to see the value of these deep-seated beliefs in, in how events play out and also in, in how we report these things and also realizing that people who don't claim an affiliation to religion have 
mm-hmm. deep-seated beliefs um, that shape their worldview and should be respected and understood um, and probed, actually, mm-hmm. uh, to see the motivation for things. I'm interested not just what people are doing, but why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think having had that real change in worldview opened up quite a lot of the world to me because most mm. of the world would claim to have some belief in the um, something larger than just the, the matter of the universe. Right, right. And so um, how did you then go from newspapers uh, being a photojournalist to being a nonfiction uh, photographer? <laughs> like what was the... This, uh, yeah, this title's funny. I mean, no one, no one ever questions actually. It's apathy. Um, but I told it to a lady once, an awards ceremony, and she just laughed. She was a teacher. She went, wow, what is a nonfiction photographer? <laughs> and I think it's over the years, it's become the, the term photojournalism. There's a kind of people feel it's problematic. Hmm. Everything's problematic um, yeah. these days. But I felt as well my work was sometimes not specifically for newspapers, though it's in the same um, ethos. And I felt like nonfiction, when you're talking about li- books, like people understand nonfiction, it's to mm-hmm. do with facts and mm-hmm. real things. Um, and I thought I'd just apply that to photography and hopefully people will get that. Yeah. Um, and it kind of moves a, a little bit away from the sort of the, the problems people associate with photojournalism because people don't want to talk about truth with a big T or um, they find it's about authenticity. So mm-hmm. um, it's trying to work that. And also my work's moved towards um, sort of gallery space as well yeah so there's an artistic element to it mm-hmm. so i feel like that allows me the flexibility to sort of see the overlap as well between journalism and art yeah. um in many ways sometimes it's about context mm-hmm. sometimes it's um just uh, yeah it's who's publishing well, if, it. if you go to kieran uh, com, you'll see some of kieran's work and there's some stunning images from some of the other projects that you did before the ethiopia project um uh, and you know, someone who comes from the the photojournalism world, I saw you. You know, you you were uh, got a World Press Photographer Photo of the Year, and these are the kinds of things I know that elevate you to doing freelance for the New York Times and these other publications. But um, tell us about some of these projects. Bats. There's, he, you've taken photos of bats. Yeah. You've taken photos apparently of gingers around the world yes, or something. So people, yeah, yeah. yeah. So tell us about those two and others <laughs> that have captivated you. Yes. The bats. The bats was the kind of the one that launched me into freelance world. Mm-hmm. So I'd won the UK Young Photographer of the Year, the Picture Editors Guild. And that was just with my general newspaper work. And they give you a bursary and, and some money. It was a great award. But the bursary, I was mm-hmm. thinking what to cover. And I phoned my old professor and he said in Zambia there's this incredible gathering of bats, 8 million bats in a space probably the size of Central Park, smaller probably. Wow. Um, so an incredible, like they said it was the highest um, gathering of mammal mass in the world, like stacked up on these trees. Hmm. Um, but I was thinking, is this a, if this is true, why has no one covered it? Um, it's often the way with amazing stories. You don't believe it at first. But I, I trusted him. He's a professor. Trustworthy. <laughs> and I went out to Zambia and spent a month with them and, and photographed them. And I came back, that was the November into December, and then January I entered the World Press Photo Awards and in February I won the, the first nice. prize in the yeah. nature stories. And it was just astounding. Like I was twenty what was mm. twenty five mm-hmm. uh, very early on and it just opened up doors and, and the yeah. world to me. So I thought that is and it was, again, linked into the, the Malawi story, the kind of conservation story. 
um, and it kind of set the, the tone for going forward. So I went mm. freelance and actually I spent a week at the uh, Missouri Photo Workshop. Mm. Um, that was in September. So mm -hmm. I, as soon as I finished my job, the next day I flew out to Missouri and, um, and learned the American way before <laughs> journalism. And it really was, it was an incredible experience. Yeah. No, mm. it's an amazing community worldwide of people who care about still images, I mm. think, you know. But it, it so. seems to have a particularly high um, role here. There's a real, mm. uh, well, what can I say, purity um, yeah. about it. And so that really inspired me to, to, to sort of change the way I shoot as well. Huh. So that was the bats. Yeah. And then in 2014, Scotland was voting on the in independence from the UK. Mm -hmm. And so the year before, I started thinking about sort of long-term projects that I could do ahead of that and I had five in total and one of them mm. was the gingers because I wanted to use this kind of cliche of national identity mm. um, to get people in and to show I use it as a, a way it's, it's portraits of people with ginger hair mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. people call it red hair yeah but I don't think it's really that red <laughs> um, and it's it's a kind of cliche of national identity so I want to use that to show the diversity of opinions and mm. um, so when we hear about Scottish people that they would see a group of people that look similar but are are diverse. Hmm. So it's it's to try and go into that. And it's, people it's, in Scotland have there's as many ginger percentage in Scotland as in Ireland because it's think, higher. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't Edinburgh know that. is the ginger capital of the world, huh. according wow. to uh, some Edinburgh scientists. So maybe they're um, biased. Yeah, it's about thirteen percent express the, the hair color and uh, huh. forty carry the gene they see. Mm -hmm. But it's I mean. And you and your family, you have a couple of kids and you guys all yep. have red hair Twins, as well? Yeah, yep. ginger. Yep. So my yeah. wife must have the gene. Uh, we mm -hmm. debate about whether she is actually ginger. Um, <laughs> she thinks so. I'm, um, I'll have to get a genetic test for her. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's expanded from then. It's, it's, a funny, it's a funny old story because it's just simple and it's, it's portraits, studio lit, mm -hmm. um, and it really captured people's imagination. And I went to London to do the ginger's redhead day uk hmm. and got gingers from across the world at that point and then i noticed this map online which is of dubious origin <laughs> uh which has a hotspot of redheads in russia yeah and so i kind of thought that'd be quite an interesting place to go yeah and a couple of years back i managed to go um to a city called perm hmm. as in the hairstyle okay is that a hairstyle right. in america yeah, yeah it is uh, the perm in from russia the 1980s yeah, yeah yeah it's coming back again. yeah i'm considering it but they, um, <laughs> you got to grow your hair out of it. Yeah, right? I will. Yeah, if it's, if it's fashionable, I'll do it. Yeah. But Perm, um, I went there and it's the same latitude as Inverness in Scotland. So I just photographed gingers in Inverness and in Russia and put them side by side. Hmm. Because to me, it's a way to over or just dissolve political boundaries. Russia is seen hmm. as the other. It is yeah. the, the, it's, it's still the evil empire. And so I kind of wanted to show that most Russians are just everyday people. Hmm. And uh, yeah, just to sort of challenge or prejudice and yeah that. yeah yeah so in, where, where, how long how long will you keep how many countries have you been to documenting gingers do you find any in new york here to document uh, or, i mean <laughs> not uh, here at work so yeah oh okay, um, good, yeah. No, no photos um <laughs> the i've not i've not done american ones um though i did meet some in london but again it's one of these stories that is self-funded and actually yeah. the russia trip was quite expensive so you do corporate work um, which then pays for these these projects, and also if you get it published, um, it pays for it as well. And it's funny though, because the gingers was started for that kind of news interest around 2014, but it's found more of a place in galleries. Yeah. Um, so that seems to be where the future is with it. Um, there's a possible 
Um, actually, I can't say about that. Okay, Shh, stop. Ah. Um, <laughs> to be, yeah. Yeah. I, I went to Jamaica recently. That's the most recent part of the Gingers project. Ah. Um, and after that, I don't know if I'd like to make a book from it, like a little mm -hmm. monograph. Mm -hmm. But hmm. I don't know whether to keep going on and on and on. Yeah. I know Iceland is, a, you know, there's certain pockets like Iceland's an interesting one mm. because I think there was a lot of Ireland connections to Iceland. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, some people with red hair mm. in, uh, in Iceland. Yeah. So we'll keep following that one and okay. see, see where it ends up. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. Everybody I meet who has red hair, if I tell them about it, they get, you know, excited. Yeah. I think. So I guess, a, yeah, next time you come to it. New York, we can uh, yeah. introduce you to some gingers. Great. <laughs> I look forward to it. Yeah. So um, uh, one question I had is why... Uh, why is the still image an important uh, medium in the digital age? The immediacy of a still image, like it can tell a story very quickly mm -hmm. and reach into people's hearts very deeply. Um, a good still image, I think that gives a strength to it, which is why when I went to MoMA this week, there's pictures in the wall and people are flocking to see them because it's a very quick and a very visceral reaction. So I think that is why there's still more actually than moving images. It's, it's the immediacy of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Like the photograph is everywhere. So it's like you can't ignore it mm -hmm. because it's everywhere. Everyone's got a camera on them. Um, and so in the digital age, it's more important because everyone's got a camera and good photography is um, so important. Mm -hmm. to try and cut through all the information out there just in one in one image you can sum up a lot of different ideas and and feelings so yeah great that's why i think it's good yeah but we we care about it at uh religion unplugged on our site and our dream is to one day publish an annual book of you know best stories with best photos from those stories each year so great um good. it's so great great to meet you great to have you in our on our podcast great to have you on our campus here at king's college today uh, thanks so much. <laughs> Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. And you've been listening to a conversation between Paul Gladder and photographer Kieran Dodds about his project, Hyrotopia. For more information and to see Kieran's work, you can check out his website, kierandodds.com. That's K-I-E-R-A-N-D-O-D-D-S.com. And of course, follow our work at religionunplugged.com.